Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk with a Doc, the show where we bring your questions to Providence medical experts for insight and information. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, and here with me today is Dr. Megan Hennessy with Providence Medical Associates, and today we're answering your questions about insomnia. Remember, everyone, all of our questions come from you, our listeners, via social media. We can be found on Twitter under Providence and under Providence Health System on Instagram and Facebook. Use the hashtag Talk with a Doc for a chance to hear your questions on our episodes. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only, and you should always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. So let's get started by welcoming our expert today, Dr. Hennessy. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Uh, You want to tell our listeners a little bit about what you do here? Sure. I'm a primary care doctor. I work mainly at a clinic where I'm medical director uh, for the uninsured uh, with patients who were recently seen in the emergency room and maybe have no insurance or who um, don't even live in the country or just passing through and don't know where to go for follow-up care. So the hospital sends them to me and I take care of them. So that's my main job. That's a really Mm -hmm. honorable role. We need that. It is a great job. It's very fulfilling. I love it. I like it. Well, we're talking about insomnia today. So let's start with a super easy one. What is the definition of insomnia? So if we want to be strict about it, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine defines insomnia as a condition lasting more than three months that uh, impairs your daytime activities um, and is either uh, an impairment in falling asleep or staying asleep. That was going to be my question for you because one, I, I have insomnia, so I'll just tell everybody, and it's okay. been 14 years, so I okay. think it's considered an it's impairment. A long time. Um, but what they've told me is that I, I could be medicated, right? But my issue is that I have both a problem falling asleep and staying asleep. And you can't do both medications, apparently, or you, you can only do for one. Anyway, so walk me through what the difference is. I either can't fall asleep or I can't stay asleep or both. How does that really work? So when you start looking at treatments for insomnia, um, obviously every individual is unique. And when you start thinking about breaking down into treatment options, um, there's a lot of factors to consider. So what is the age of the patient and what is their unique situation? So what are their lifestyle factors? Do their kidneys work? Mm-hmm. What, what do they do before bed? What do they do for a living? Do they work overnight? Is it a sleep wake disorder? Right. Do they travel a lot? Um, there are just a million questions that go into this. So there's not really a one size fits all answer when it comes to medication. So Um, For example, if we were just to assume that you work during the day and your kidneys work and you're an average age person in your middle age, let's say. Bless you for not saying I'm old on air. I appreciate that. Well, you're not not (laughs) a child and you're not in the extreme of elderly age. Right. So our options would be first that AASM, American Academy of Sleep Medicine, would say um, behavioral therapy would be the optimum choice for actually all humans. That would be the thing that's studied the most and recommended the most as the safest, best choice and most likely to be effective, meaning cognitive behavioral therapy to intervene, learn ways to soothe yourself to sleep, essentially. So altering your lifestyle rather than medication, basically. Yeah, it's basically okay. a combination of learning ways to get your body to sleep, um, as well as what we call sleep hygiene. So the things, the the behaviors that go around what what happens before bedtime in your house, literally how bright the lights are in your house, what you're doing, how much screen time is happening on your phone, on Mm -hmm. your TV, on your computer, all of these things kind of add up to how stimulated your brain is in the hours leading up to bedtime. 
So I'm interested, you talked about age, but then you said your kidneys are working. How do the kidneys impact insomnia? So they don't necessarily affect insomnia. Um, They affect what drugs we consider safe to give to a person who has insomnia. Um, So although... (laughs) Basically, you can make a case for anything affecting anything and everything in the body. So once somebody has advanced kidney disease, you can have all sorts of things during the daytime that affects miseries of the nighttime that can keep you up, unfortunately, because nature is cruel. But um, the medications that are considered safe to give to people um, vary greatly with with other illnesses. So sleep apnea is a common common disorder Mm -hmm. we see, and most of the medications that are considered sedative hypnotic drugs or benzodiazepines can suppress the brain's drive to make you breathe. And so if someone's not using um, a device called like a CPAP to help you breathe at night, that the drugs will make you breathe less, which we all know breathing less might make you die. Right. So we try not to do that to people. (laughs) Um, So there's a lot of factors that kind of um, help us decide whether or not a medication is safe to give, which is frustrating because people who don't sleep feel terrible. Absolutely. And it can be really frustrating. Like, doctor, why won't you give me that drug? And it's like, well, it's not to be mean. I just, you know, try not to murder people. It's like a parent, right? I don't want you to run out into the street. It's not that mommy doesn't want you to have fun in life. (laughs) Yeah, it's not punitive, but yeah, so there's a lot that goes into the making of these decisions, and Absolutely. it's even more frustrating when you're working in urgent care and you don't have a relationship with a patient, and it's right. like, oh my gosh, I have compassion. I want you to sleep. I right. really do, but um, yeah, unfortunately, there's a lot, of, a lot of conversation that needs to be had before you find out the best, safest decision for the person. Do people come into the urgent care for insomnia? All the time. Really? All the time. I do also work urgent care. Okay. Um, so it is a common thing because you're desperate and it's after mm-hmm. hours. You finish your shift at work. Okay. You know, a lot of people don't have a primary care doctor um, or they're new to the area or they work overnight. And there's just a lot of a lot right, of people who are right. just purely desperate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's just it's really unfortunate. It's such a tough condition to treat. Absolutely. Well, what actually causes it or how do you get insomnia? So, again, it's a very individual journey. So sometimes it's situational. You've had a loss of a pet, a loss of a loved one. You've moved. You've got a new job, a a unique stressor, a financial strain, a new baby, Mm -hmm. um, or an overnight job. There's just so many different things. Or sometimes, unfortunately, multiple of those things are happening at the same time. Um, So... Depending on the situation, some of those things you have no control over whatsoever. So um, for me personally, you know, there's, an, of course, an art to prescribing or, or not prescribing in any of those situations. So, um, of course, there's the AASM recommendations. There's the American Academy of Family Medicine, um, ABIM. There's all these different organizations that kind of give us guidelines on what to do. Um, but there's an art in medicine of having a relationship with a patient and figuring out, you know, what is humane? What are the guidelines? What is safe? Mm-hmm. What do I know of this person? Um, which all that changes in urgent care, of course. But, you know, um, and choosing choosing what's right in each of those situations. So it's always a, a matter of doing the least harm. Right. So most of the drugs have some habit-forming potential. And some of the drugs have been associated with some risk of dementia later in life. Really? I did not know that. So, yes. So, I mean, I say this kind of half-jokingly, but um, when people don't have an opportunity to sleep because... Um, 
like I have been guilty of this myself. I stay up wi- late watching my favorite TV show. Oh, binging. Yeah. The Maybe Netflix binging. Of the world. Mm-hmm. And then I wake up tired and I'm like, oh, shucks. That's not insomnia. That's me making a poor choice. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's not a good, a good night to take a, a sleep aid. That's just make a better choice the next night. Right. Um, so that, that's not a good example of insomnia. Um, so same thing goes for like late night caffeine or caffeine after the noon hour. We all hit that wall at 3 p.m. where we're a little dehydrated. We're kind of we're kind of just done for the day. Um, don't go to Starbucks uh, and stay up all night because is noon kind of the, the yeah. pivotal point. If, you were, if you're okay. on that typical kind of eight to five, nine to five work schedule, I would recommend not afternoon caffeine. Oh, so, tr- yeah, okay. so, tr- so I mean, just to get into the behavioral things we can do, like generally AASM would recommend, let's talk about like the, the no-nos that we can try to do just to have a good night's sleep. Stay on a cycle as much as possible, including the weekends. So uh, I know we like to sleep on the weekends. Yeah. I do it too, but as much as possible, create your bedtimes and stick with them. So even if you go to bed late for some some exotic reason, still get up at your same wake up time and get back on the cycle the next night. So, so important. Your brain craves it. It needs it. Even when it feels uncomfortable to get up at the regular time, it will help you out. Well, you can do what I did, which is to buy a farm because farm animals will let you know that it's feeding time. It doesn't matter what day of the week it is. (laughs) Yeah, I grew up in Kansas. I'm very familiar. Oh, yeah. You hear them. You they they let you know it's six a.m. Let's eat. Yeah, they don't take a day off. (laughs) So um, the cycle is important. Okay, perfect. Um, Avoiding stimulating activities in the you know three four hours prior to whatever your set bedtime is. So stimulating activities, screen time, paying bills, exercise for most people is a stimulating thing. Eating, eating particularly greasy, carbohydrate carbohydrate rich. Um, sugary foods, bad. Mm-hmm. But we all do it. But okay, I know that's mm-hmm. the best time to have Snickers right. and watch TV. Nine o'clock is the best time to eat all the snacks. No. I am not at all implying that those aren't the most pleasurable things on earth. I'm just saying, ideally, in a perfect world, when we all follow the rules, this is what the recommendation is. So we should strive toward them. Well, if you can't sleep and you're exhausted and you don't feel well, I would much rather not have sugar the night before and be well rested than the way I feel when I haven't slept. I know. Yeah. But, it, you know, nobody's perfect. So I just <laughs> I, I just try to tell patients, like, you know, we all make mistakes. But um, so cycle and ideally. stimulating activities. Yes. Um, additionally, creating a culture in the bedroom of using literally the bed only for sleep and sex. And that's it. It's not a place where you surf the web. It's not a place where you do homework. Um, it, it's just where you sleep or have relations. We're not watching TV. That's not, nope, that's not your hangout culture. That's just, those are the only places your brain needs to know that that is the quiet time place or your sexy time place. (laughs) And that's it. Because otherwise, it just it just creates a stimulating environment for yeah. you. Well, our and brain is smarter than we are. Yeah. So we can think one thing, but it knows another. Mm-hmm. And two hours before bed, pull the curtains, dim the lights, start start a, you know, a, a slow down process for, you know, tell your brain there's a gland in your brain, the pineal gland that senses through your skull, literally the amount of ambient light. Uh-huh. So you need to tell it, shh, it's nighttime now. So that's what you're literally doing. So just start dimming all the lights. And I do these things myself because I 
I'm a night owl. And if I had my preferred sleep weight cycle, I'd be awake until 4 a.m. Mm-hmm. And I'd get up at noon. And that would be, if I could rule the world, how it all worked. I'm but, with you, sister. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I have to really work hard to keep my cycle the way it is so I can function and be alert for my patients and be present. So I, I have to do all these things myself. Um, so these are really important things to maintain that cycle. And she really is working with patients because we actually are on remote today at an office, which is probably why you can hear people talking and doors slamming. But it's it's we appreciate your time. We're doing work. So what about things, though, like we hear about blue light? I should turn my blue light on my phone down like two, two hours before bed. Or what about people who are taking medications? Maybe that would be more like upper medications. What do you think about that? Timing of medications is really important. So things like um, some people take medications that are very stimulating. So those should be morning time medications. And if there's a question about whether they're stimulating talk to your doctor um, about what they might be but you know some examples um, Wellbutrin Adderall things like that those are morning time medications um, usually um, we should tell our doctors though right like if we're going yeah. to the doctor to get a prescription we should say hey doc by the way I can't sleep at night so maybe I should change my prescription or what do you think is what we should say right yeah and sometimes you know um, it's healthcare is complicated Girl. Appointment length appointment length is so short, and by no fault of their own, your doctor is just given very little time. So oftentimes an appointment is for your elbow pain, and there's just not time for your doctor right. to, to really go over your whole medication list and be like, oh, you know what? I noticed that this prescription is written for nighttime. Can you sleep? So, um, you know, it's not always easy to, to get all these things in. But yes, um, just, you know. Well, my doctor even has, you can online schedule in 20 minute segments. So if you have a question that you didn't get handled in the last appointment, you can, you can schedule it yourself and go in for that. So maybe that's what somebody should look at. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, I mean, it is wise to do a once a year, like medication review kind of thing yeah. for all humans, probably who take like medications every day. That's Absolutely. probably a great choice. Well, I know that this topic specifically had a lot of questions from our fans. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to go through a lot of questions for you. Wonderful. I'm looking forward to it. All right. We'll be right back. Stay. 
And we're back on Talk with the Doc, and I'm joined today by Dr. Megan Hennessy of Providence Medical Associates, and we are talking about insomnia. We had so many questions come in about this topic, and some of them were really interesting to me. Like, I had never thought about this one, but someone asked, is insomnia genetic? It is not usually considered genetic. I think there's probably some behavioral things we learn from our parents that affect us in a lifelong and profound way, mm-hmm. but um, Nature it's not versus considered nurture. a genetic illness. Yeah. Correct. All right. What about how long can insomnia last? So that's a that's a complex question. Um, She's very, like, that's a whole other yeah, show. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a very individual um, journey for people. Yeah. Depends on the situation, depends on the cause, and some of those things we, we cannot change. Um, if the insomnia is due to caring for a loved one who's got you know right. some complex illness, it may never go away if that that person has that lifelong illness. But um, it just it just depends. Right. Basically, no good answer. But it can resolve on its own. Yes. It can, um, but usually there's some intervention, be it mm-hmm. behavioral, be it stop drinking Starbucks right before sure. bed, um, or you know, just a matter of like, eh, maybe I shouldn't pay my bills right before bed because it makes me super <laughs> makes me anxious. Stressed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's amazing. Well, what about diet? Um, we've talked a little bit about like caffeine and and so forth, but can diet uh, affect sleep? It can. Um, so I was perusing the AASM website, American Academy of Sleep Medicine, and there was a study they were referencing about people who uh, had high carbohydrate, high sugar, high greasy, oily food before mm-hmm. bed compared with people who didn't. And they had poor sleep quality. They were kind of doing questionnaires and, and mm-hmm. people who were kind of comparing the two, the two groups. And they were reporting less sleep, worse sleep, and it does affect your sleep, um, your ability to fall asleep and stay asleep. So these are small studies. And just to touch on the evidence, um, it's sleep has been poorly studied in general. So... Um, it's uh, there's a lot of opportunities in the research. So the answers that we have about sleep are kind of few compared to the other areas that have been studied in terms and of like evolving. heart failure and heart attacks and strokes. Yeah. But um, it's growing and it's being worked on, you know, steadily. It's a it's a hugely important sleep is what, probably one of the most important things that we do, um, and we know so little about it. But yeah, so anyway, it does affect it. And in general, you know, to live a long time, we do know that we probably shouldn't eat trash, right? Right. Um, oh, well, that's <laughs> but, true. <laughs> but um, for a good night's sleep, you know, try not to eat, especially spicy things as well. But you know, the the heavier, sure. sh- more sugary meals, maybe avoid those, or at least put them earlier in the day if you have to. Well, you just said to get enough sleep. What constitutes enough sleep? Again, for ASM, for adults, seven to nine hours would be considered acceptable and ideal. What about things like um, melatonin? We hear a lot about melatonin. Is that Mm -hmm. actually a good option? It is a good option. It is a great option. It's a hormone that our brains already make, and it's something that's supposed to kind of surge in the pre-night hours to cue our bodies that it's about time to sleep. Um, that can get kind of disturbed in some people for a myriad of reasons. Um, travel, particularly traveling eastbound, um, can, mm-hmm. can disturb this, this pattern, and that's kind of the jet lag experience. Um, so for travelers going east, um, definitely bring melatonin along, and your doctor could actually prescribe a long-acting version of melatonin. Um, so that's something to check in with before you travel. Um, it's usually, I mean, if you're going to other countries, it's a good idea to see your doctor anyway, because there's often some preventive right. things you can um, take with you. But um, yes, so there's long-acting melatonin you can take. There's also some some steps you can take. If you go to the AASM website, it's actually really useful to see about um, making some changes to your sleep cycle before you even travel. 
Um, oh, yes. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So go there. Uh, it's actually a pretty user-friendly website. Um, but yeah, yeah, you can start taking this um, long-acting melatonin once you arrive, and that should help with some of the jet lag. But it basically helps you not have those disturbances and the the fatigue the next day. Right. Melatonin is interesting because it was working for me. One of the doctors told me about it and I was taking like three milligrams and I was like, oh, if three is good, then I should take more. And I think I was up to like 10 and it actually was kind of having a reverse effect. And so everything I read says three to five milligrams is typically what you need. Is that accurate? Mm -hmm. Three to six. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So not more is better. Not necessarily. Yeah. (laughs) Six is kind of the highest I've ever seen in, in the recommended range. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about holistic options because I hear a lot of celebs talking about insomnia and how it impacts their health. I think uh, George Clooney, Mariah Carey, Jennifer Aniston all have talked about getting treatment for insomnia. But what's interesting to me is the divide between medication and holistic options. So a lot of them talk about meditation or yoga or things like melatonin. What do you think? Is, Is medication always the right option? Is holistic better? Is cognitive better? Does it really depend on the person? I think... In general, in life, um, when we can choose not to prescribe things, Mm -hmm. we should not prescribe things Mm -hmm. Um, because there's always a chance. I mean, have you seen the movie My Girl? Oh, yeah. A Mm -hmm. bee can kill you. Yes, exactly. Right? A strawberry. You can, I mean, nature, I'm sorry, (laughs) nature's cruel, right? Right. Uh, We die. Um, So anytime we're adding something to our bodies, something bad can happen. Right. I'm not saying medications are all super dangerous, but if we can get a good night's sleep with just turning down the lights and not drinking gigantic Starbucks Mm -hmm. late in the evening, let's do that first. Right. Right. That's my philosophy. I think that's most doctors, right? We're not like all pill pushers. Um, The unfortunate dynamic is that, you know, medicine's kind of shifted toward more of a a Yelp review driven, satisfaction driven well, it's like we come in asking for what we want, not what yeah, the doctor thinks we should have. Yeah, it's a transactional mm-hmm. expectation, um, which complicates things in urgent care um, sure. when people don't have a primary doctor to go to and have a relationship, and there's just there's not a there's not a trust of the doctor. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're just some stranger, and then I think that's kind of that harms the patient. the The doctor doesn't want anything bad for the patient, but there's always that looming like, well, I'm going to tear you up on Yelp. Right. Um, That's so kind disconcerting. Semi threat. So I think that drives some of the some of the tendency toward prescribing that you wouldn't otherwise see. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's. That's everywhere. That's all across America. That's not any particular health system. That's, that's just every like, industry. Restaurants are the same thing. You're comping food because you don't now. want the negative yeah. review. Yeah. yeah. So when patients are very just, they feel very strongly like, oh, my cousin gets this, you know, mm-hmm. Xanax to sleep, which is not, it's not a, it's not an approved use of Xanax. It's not how it's FDA approved. It's not supposed to be used that way. It's extremely habit forming. If you have it with wine, you could accidentally die. You know, it's really challenging. Yeah when patients ask me for that because I'm like look boo boo like I don't want I don't want to hurt you um so it's challenging so yes better not to prescribe but there are situations where somebody's experienced a loss they're grieving Mm -hmm. they cannot sleep right it is the humane thing to do to prescribe and just let them know you know this is not meant to be a permanent prescription but it is here as a support tool for you so everyone's different and then some people just, despite everything they do, their brain is just resisting sleep. Yeah. And they just, you got to let someone live their best life. Yep. And that's what we're here to do. So it's a, it's a complex 
it's a complex it decision is. It is. and you've always got to act in someone's best interest but you know we're never trying to deprive someone of of rest <laughs> well i think people forget too you don't have to have an ongoing prescription and it doesn't have to be for 30 pills in a month right. it could be for five pills over six months it could be a prescription that you renew every six months like it's not, it's not always going to be a guarantee yeah there's there's no set in stone rule for anything actually but you know like we know for older adults over the age of 65 the american geriatric society says here's a whole list of medicines it's called the beers list and it says don't give these to older folks except for in very unusual situations mm -hmm. because we know it makes them fall down oh, and right. hit their heads right. and have terrible things break their hips and um don't do it um or if we know you're on medicines that interact with all these sleeping pills like don't do that but you know like I said, it's a, it's a complex dynamic. The expectations yeah. are, are just really challenging. So doctors are in a tough spot these days and they've got are. a lot of respect for, for, for all of them, yeah. you know, facing these decisions. Well, you touched on a couple of things. One, we always tell people on the show to get a primary care physician. It's Absolutely. one of the best things you can do. So let's reiterate that here. But you touched on a couple of things because we have two questions that I think you kind of covered, which is one is, are sleep aids addictive? And what are the safety concerns? But another one was, are there medical conditions that can cause insomnia or things that I can't take medication for because I have? A lot to unpack there. But let's start with, are they addictive, sleep aids? Many of them are. Um, I'll start with kind of the safe list. So melatonin is safe for pretty much everyone. Um, so if you were going to start thinking about medication and you're kind of somebody who's um, a little bit wary of taking medicines, that's kind of the place to start. And then the other one that's safe kind of in elderly folks even would be doxepin. Okay. Um, so unless you're on a medication that, that interacts with, with doxepin, which I can't think of off the top of my head. Um, I think those would be the, the best places to start for non-habit forming, pretty safe medications. Um, in terms of things that have been studied and aren't, aren't really on the, aren't supported by evidence as things to choose, um, antihistamines long-term, mm. no, they're not really, they haven't been shown to help people fall asleep faster or stay asleep. Um, in elderly people, they can cause psychosis, delirium, falls, right, right. urinary retention, all kinds of things. So things that you don't really think about, that just sounds like, ah, oh, it's just Benadryl. But um, I mean, psychosis, that's a real deal. That's a big, that's a big right? one, yeah. Big time stuff. So um, the Z drugs, they're called, the Sonata Lunesta Ambien, um, those things can can be very habit forming um but they have their place and their time for sure but those you know those are probably the more habit forming things and you know in in women can can cause some risk of car accidents the next day if yeah. taken in the higher doses for yeah. ambien and things like that so these are all things your doctor's already thinking of even if you know they're not taking the time to tell you because they don't have the time and right. also nerd alert like not everybody needs to know every <laughs> single detail of every single thing but that's like these are the things they're thinking about in the back of their head when they're um, choosing uh, drugs for you but um yeah those do have habit forming potential as well as the risk of rebound insomnia when you stop using them you can't oh, sleep that next night right. and then that makes you crazy and you need to keep taking it. So um, those, those are risks. Um, benzodiazepines interact with other drugs. Like, for example, let's say um, you're, you're taking a drug like an opioid after a surgery or something. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, I can't sleep because I'm so constipated from the Norco I just took for my knee right. surgery. I'm going to take my whatever, the Xanax I got from urgent care two years ago for sleep whoops, I stopped breathing and died because I didn't realize they interact oh gosh, with each other. Yeah. 
because um, that's the, these are interactions that happen all the time. And in fact, the American lifespan is now shorter because of these kind of opioid overdose yeah. Yeah. deaths, which is outrageous yeah. and, and so, so sad. Um, so, I mean, it's a complex situation that we're working on. Um, but yeah, these, these conversations take time to have. And, yeah, absolutely. you know, I, but yeah. <laughs> so, so um, well, let me safest ask. was was doxepin. Yeah. Just to get back to 